Whether it's the tabloids or the people at TMZ, the human heart loves to see the scandals of prominent people. What a sad commentary it is on our culture that you used to be able, when newspapers existed, you could open a newspaper and see sections on politics, business, sports, gossip, right? And that's part of, part of what people want to read about. It's human nature to want to see people at their worst. Now, in our text tonight, it's not a good thing, by the way. <laughs> in our text tonight, we're going to see Noah at his very worst. But first, let's remember who he was, according to Scripture, a blameless man. He was a preacher of righteousness, a faithful follower of God Almighty. Of course, none of those descriptors mean that he was sinless, far from it, just like us. And tonight, we will read the report of a terrible incident in his life. Why does God record and broadcast this for us? Is this some sort of cosmic gossip? Did you hear what Noah did the other day? Oh. No, of course not. The text serves multiple purposes. First, we remember that it is a pit stop on, the, on God's unfolding work of redemption. He's telling us a story, the story of his love and his grace uh, working in spite of sin and in spite of sinners and the whole reason why he has to work through history is because of our sin and he has to undo what we've done. After Adam and Eve sinned there in the garden, what happened? God came to them and he said, okay, what you've done is really bad and it's gonna get a lot worse, but I have a plan and I have a plan to make right what you have done wrong. I'm going to put back together what you have ruined. And Genesis records for us the opening moves of that plan to carve out and preserve a particular lineage in the earth from which the Messiah would ultimately come to make everything right again. He would come through a particular group of people, and this is their story. And unfortunately, this is a significant stop in their story. Now, in addition, we know that the New Testament explains to us as Christians that the things written in the Old Testament are preserved for our instruction and our encouragement, that we would be built up in our ability to follow God and endure with hope, and that we learn to be careful lest we ourselves fall into sin. And so what lies before us tonight, it's a strange story, it's sordid, it's scandalous, it's sad. It's also profitable for those of us who want to walk with God in a in an effective and meaningful way. And we find it's not only profitable for us, this is also a very prophetic chapter. In fact, the first prophecy uttered by human lips in the record of Scripture is given tonight. When we left off, God had brought Noah and his sons out of the ark, blessed them, and established new directives for them as they went out to fill the world. Now, between verses 17, where we left off, and 18, where we pick up, at least a couple of decades have passed. Noah has settled into a new career. He's no longer a carpenter. He's no longer a shipbuilder. And he has grown grandchildren, we'll see. So we begin in verse 18. Noah's sons who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. Kind of a weird thing to point out there's going to be a conspicuous focus on the existence of Canaan, even though he doesn't actually appear in these verses at all. But we're going to see him referenced quite a bit. It leads to a lot of head-scratching from the commentators and scholars. In fact, 
This whole section has elicited a lot of conjecture and speculation and misapplications. And frankly, there's going to be some questions that we simply don't have a clear answer for. But remember the first audience. We, I've been pointing this out from time to time. The first audience of this book, the first people to, to have the book of Genesis read to them were the children of Israel under Moses. Moses is the man being inspired by the Holy Spirit to author this book or perhaps also to put together some of these early accounts as an editor and then author other parts of it. And so he's delivering this to the children of Israel who are brought out of Egypt, out of slavery, and they're being promised a a covenant land from God. And they're being given a whole way of life and they're being given a government and a nationality and all these things. And part of that is that they're told that they must go to the promised land and they must completely destroy whole nations of Canaanites. It's a pretty big ask and a significant thing. Why does God want us to do this? And what we find as we go through these books is that God's judgment on the Canaanites was not unwarranted. He had an overwhelming case against them and their wickedness. And as agents of judgment, which the Israelites would be, the children of Israel would not only be eyewitness to their evil from afar, but God would also reveal to them the history of their immoral atrocities starting in the book of Genesis. And so it's important that we recognize this is a big topic, especially people who are angry at God or who dislike the Bible or who dislike Christianity. They bring up the conquest of Canaan a lot. And how could God, you know, how could a God of love command the, the destruction of, wholesale destruction of so many people? That's an important topic to discuss. It's not one we're discussing tonight. Uh, but what we are seeing here are the seeds of God's explanation. And what's clear is that God did not flip a coin and just choose the Canaanites for destruction. He doesn't act like Zeus or one of these Greek gods who just gets into a bad mood and kind of wipes some people out. No, the Lord, in fact, waited hundreds and hundreds of years hoping that the Canaanites and the Amorites and all of these people would repent. And yet they kept filling up their iniquity more and more and more until finally judgment fell on them in the form of conquest. Verse 19 These three were Noah's sons, and from them the whole earth was populated. Back in 2009, the Washington Post had an interesting article. They reported this in their science news section. Quote, all of earth's people, according to a new analysis of the human genome, fall into just three genetic groups. And then they go on to talk about hundreds of thousands of years and natural selection and things that are very evolutionary, but they have to come to the acceptance of the fact that when we put everything under our electron microscopes, we see, oh, it seems like everybody on earth comes from three different genetic groups. How interesting. Now, the Bible's not designed to be a science textbook, but that doesn't mean that our faith is unscientific. And so you as a Christian, you do not need to fear research or the academic study of our world or of history or of archaeology or of biology. Because again and again, we find that these things verify what God has already told us in his word. And when often non-believing, God-hating scientists come along, they will make certain discoveries and they will say, oh, this, is, uh, this proves the Bible is not true. One of my favorites is that 
they have found a place that they're pretty sure is the biblical cities of Sodom and Gomorrah that were suddenly destroyed by fire and brimstone. But that's not Sodom, it's a different city. Why? We were told about this for thousands of years ago. Oh, no, 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 it can't be that because the Bible can't be true. And so our faith, is not unsci- our faith is not unscientific, and we don't have to worry about that. Verse 20, Noah, as a man of the soil, began by planting a vineyard. He drank some of the wine, became drunk, and uncovered himself in his tent. John Gill points out that Noah became a man of the soil. He did not set himself up as Lord of the earth. Very interesting. If anyone had the right to claim leadership or put himself on a throne or establish authority over others, it was Noah. He's the only patriarch at the time. He's the deliverer. He's the ark builder. He's the one who speaks with God. If not for him, there is no human race, right? As the story goes. And yet, what does he do? He didn't put himself on a throne. He didn't raise himself up. He didn't demand everybody pledge loyalty or allegiance to him or bow their knees to him. No, he grabbed a hoe and a shovel and he went to work cultivating a little plot of ground. He didn't even go and, and plant some sort of Noah flag and say, all this continent is mine. That's what people loved to do during the colonial age, right? They just land somewhere and be like, we put a flag here. This is ours now. And all the like, people who already lived there are like, we, we already live here. And they're like, sorry, it belongs to Spain now. There's nothing we can do. I planted my flag. But Noah didn't do anything like that. It came out of the ark. He had a conversation with God Almighty, explaining to him how things were going to work from here on out. And then he just said about his business as a farmer, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth, Jesus said. Noah is showing us a great demonstration at first here of incredible humility. In our social media obsessed culture, humility is an absolutely worthless virtue. When's the last time you heard a person praise another person because they were humble, right, in our culture? It's just not something that's done. But in God's economy, humility is a necessity, humility or meekness. It is an absolute necessity. It is a fundamental requirement to faithfully live out the Christian life. And so be a humble person. Allow the Lord to grow humility in you. Now, something went very wrong with Noah's farming. We see him developing this vineyard. And then when the time came, he produced his vintage. And he got what we can only describe as hammered drunk one day, blackout drunk, really, really, really drunk. And for whatever reason, he stripped off all his clothes in his tent and was going around naked. It's weird and it's shameful and it's a bad thing that happened. A number of commentators try to excuse Noah and suggest that he had no idea that wine could be fermented and and that if you drank fermented wine, it would make you drunk. Even if we try to give Noah the benefit of the doubt, which we really try to do for Bible characters, we try to give them the benefit of the doubt and not always just trash them or say, you should have done better, I would have done better if I was you. That's not what we're saying. But even if we're trying to give Noah the benefit of the doubt, that's a stretch to suggest he had no idea what was going on. He had no idea. The the fermentation process just happened by accident and he drank it and got drunk and then was, you know, he kept drinking it and kept getting inebriated. Noah wasn't a stupid guy. 
He had lived for hundreds and hundreds of years. And very importantly, he had watched a wicked world in all their excess, in all their sinfulness, in all their depraved immorality. And he, in contrast, had gone to those people and preached to them about righteousness and about the judgment to come and about how they need to walk with God and about how their lives did not comport with a life that honors God. Now, drunkenness is always disapproved of and condemned in the Bible, always. You are commanded to not be drunk, not on wine, not on whiskey, not on pills, not on anything. Rather, as Christians, you and I are supposed to be filled with the Holy Spirit, making him the refreshment that we drink in to warm our hearts and to bring us joy. There's also a devotional warning for us here. You and I, right now, are capable of absolutely shocking levels of sin. And we need to be honest about that. Remember who Noah was. Remember how he's described in the Bible, how he's described in the New Testament. Remember what he had gone through in order to serve God, in order to honor God, in order to do what God had asked of him. Noah is an absolute giant of the faith. He and his family were the only believers on the planet. How many more are we just in this room who believe in God and who love God and want to go his way? And we're people, we have the indwelling Holy Spirit and we have the completed word of God. Noah's out there by himself and he lived out this life in such faithful submission to God. And yet, what do we see here? He's not perfect. He's still a sinner. We're still sinners. We are capable of shocking levels of sin. And if we say, no, I I would never do X. I would never do Y. I would never do Z. Peter said the same thing. Peter, who walked with Jesus and talked with Jesus, who knows what Jesus looked like, he said, Lord, even if everyone else abandons you, I'll never abandon you. And Jesus had to say, man, you're gonna deny me three times before the night's over. And Peter said, ah, that's not true. I'll die for you. He did ultimately die for him. But in that moment of his denial, he fell into sin. If these characters in the Bible who had such great demonstrated faith are able to sin, of course, we are also able to sin, not because they're better than us, but because this is the human condition. Because even if you're redeemed and even if you're following after God, we still wrestle with what Paul calls the the body of flesh, right? That, That dead nature that is inclined to rebel against God and inclined to go after temptation and inclined toward sin. And so we're capable of sin. And so here at the start, this passage urges us to not let our spiritual guard down, but to continue in uprightness. Noah was an upright man. And for whatever reason or set of reasons, he slipped into a period of life here where he was no longer walking uprightly. And we want to be people who continue in our uprightness. Keep yourself upright in your walk. Commenting on Noah's sin, John Bunyan wrote, Though the days of affliction, of temptation and distress are harsh, yet they are not half so dangerous as are the days of peace and liberty. Noah, it was better with you when you were an ark builder. Yea, it was better with you when a world of ungodly men set themselves against you. 
Yea, when every day your life was in danger to be destroyed by the giants against whom you were a preacher for a hundred years. For then you walked with God, then you were better than all the world, but now you are in the relapse. Verse 22 says this, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. Was Ham a believer? It's an important question. He's gonna do some despicable things here. I find it impossible to say that he wasn't. After all, God had just judged the whole world because of unbelief. Would it have been just for God to allow seven righteous people and one heathen on the ark? Yeah, that guy's fine, just let him in. Uh, he can skate while everybody else dies in the flood. When the chapter opened, Ham was blessed along with Noah and his brothers. And yet we see here an appalling sin Ham, at very least, was ogling his father and mocking him and disrespecting him and spreading the word of his humiliation. There's enjoyment both in the looking and the telling to Shem and Japheth. The next question is, was it more than that? And there's lots and lots of pages written about what exactly did Ham do? Now, this is gonna get a little uncomfortable, but we're already in the midst of an embarrassing scandal, and I do think it's sort of worth dealing with something that you're going to come across if you read commentaries on this passage. Based off of the teaching of some third century Jewish rabbis, a tradition grew that what Ham actually did was one of two things, that he either sodomized Noah or that he castrated Noah. And that was the rabbinic tradition for a really, really long time. And some scholars today still accept one of these views. Some accept the sexual assault idea because in the law of Moses later, we read the phrase, uncover the nakedness, and it can be a euphemism for such an act. There are some problems, though, with these ideas. One is that these ideas originate not from an original source, not from antiquity, but from the Babylonian Talmud in the 300s AD. Second, scholars, good scholars, debate over how much the Hebrew language justifies here in, in, in what it's saying. I'm sure, I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I don't know if anyone here is a Hebrew scholar, but we kind of, as Bible students, have an understanding that the Hebrew and Greek languages are very rich and very able to be used in certain ways that English is not able to be used. And frequently, when things are brought into English, they lose some of the depth of meaning. And so Hebrew scholars argue over what did it mean by he looked or he saw or he gazed upon his father. And so scholars debate over whether the language justifies an interpretation of sexual assault or not. And we're not told that Ham uncovered Noah's nakedness, which in other parts of the Old Testament is a euphemism for sexual activity. We're told Noah uncovered his own nakedness. And so it's a vague and strange and sad passage. Is it possible that Sam, or Sam, that Ham, Sam didn't do it. I can be sure about that. But is it possible that Ham raped or castrated Noah? Sadly, it is, yes, possible. You can make some case from that based off of some studies. But let's just take this on face value because this is what we're given in the text. And we always want to go to the text rather than say, well, I'm, I'm leaning on the extra discussion outside of the text. So let's take this on faith, face value. 
At least some scholars feel that given the language here, there was at least perversion in the way that he was looking at his father. He didn't just accidentally walk in, see something he didn't want to see and quickly walk out. That's not what's happening here. And we see that he's delighting in telling his two brothers of what has happened. This is another sober warning to us of what even a redeemed heart is capable of if we don't walk in the spirit. So let's see the response. Verse 23, and Shem and Japheth took a cloak and placed it over both their shoulders and walking backward, they covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned away and they did not see their father naked. And so the, the text focuses on, on the scene. Right, And so I don't necessarily think we need to jump all the way to the extreme. They were intent on not seeing their father naked. Now, nudity is so commonplace in our world, so emphasized, so saturated in our culture that we kind of read this and we tend to feel the need to inflate Ham's sin. He must have done something worse. He does, must have gone further. He must have been truly awful because after all, just seeing your dad naked, who even cares? Is kind of the, the, cultural, the, the cultural default that we might fall into. It must have been more than just seeing his old man naked and laughing about it. But look at how seriously Shem and Japheth took this task of theirs. They were taking this very seriously. In the ancient world, being exposed was a big, big deal. Maybe you've heard of Herodotus. Herodotus was a Greek historian from the 400s BC in that century. And he wrote about how the ancient king of Lydia, for whatever weird reason, because people are weird, he once compelled one of his bodyguards to look on the nakedness of the queen, his wife, the, the king's wife. And when it was found out, the result was one of those two guys had to die. Either the bodyguard had to kill the king because he was forced to do it, or they said, or you're gonna die because this is so untoward, this is so wrong, this is such a violation that somebody, this is a capital offense, somebody's gonna die for this. Shem and Japheth not only show great respect here, but great compassion. Their father has made a fool of himself, and yet they figure out a way to cover him up. I'm guessing the effort would have been funny if the situation weren't so tragic. I think if we try not to think through things like this, but it probably wasn't a very simple and very neat job that they had to do, right? I don't know if you've ever had to interact with a really drunk person or somebody passed out because they're stoned or something like that. So now imagine that you're trying to help that person, but you're not allowed to look at them. And so they're walking backwards in this tent and they're trying to keep this cloak between. I mean, it's practically a Three Stooges thing, except for it's a tragedy. And we see just great compassion as they put this, this cloak on their shoulders and they say, okay, our dad is messed up, but we are going to step in and try to cover what has happened. They demonstrate for us one of the functions of godly love. Of course, God was the first to show this very kind of love. What did he do when Adam and Eve were found naked and ashamed? He clothed them. He did so personally. He did so carefully. He did so tenderly. In Ezekiel chapter 16, we see God pouring out his heart to wayward Israel, and he describes with vivid imagery what kind of love he has for people. Let me read this verse. God says to his people, 
Then I passed by you and saw you and you were indeed at the age for love. So I spread the edge of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I pledged myself to you and entered into covenant with you. This is the declaration of the Lord God and you became mine. And so this is the kind of love that God has. And now that very love has been poured into our hearts, shed abroad in our hearts, the Bible says. And now we get to be like him. We get to be like God and allow that kind of love to what? Cover a multitude of sins, Romans 5 says and 1 Peter says. Now we get to use God's agape, compassionate, active love to cover a multitude of sins. That doesn't mean that you're supposed to participate in what we call a cover-up, sweeping something under the rug, or that we're supposed to ignore sin. That's not what's happening here. It means that we, as Christians, lovingly work to restore repentant believers back into the family of faith as opposed to leaving them in their shame and leaving them in their exposure. If they are repentant and say, I need to be restored, that we, with God's love, restore that one in a, in a spirit of mercy and tenderness. You know, we live in a time when a person's mistakes can get you canceled, right? Get you fired, get you kicked out, get you sent off to Exile Island somewhere, no matter how long ago that mistake happened. But in the church, this is what's supposed to happen. Galatians 6, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. Carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. And so Noah, in his example here, teaches us the importance of continuing in uprightness. Shem and Japheth teach us to cover over sin with God's love. And there's still one more thought for us as we see what comes next in the aftermath. Verse 24, when Noah awoke from his drinking and learned what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Canaan is cursed. He will be the lowest of slaves to his brothers. Well, why wasn't Ham the target of Noah's curse here? We have to endure some fog and vagaries in this story. I will say thus far in Genesis, we can notice a trend. At the time, remember we talked about dispensations last time. God dealt with people in different ways at different times throughout human history. Salvation is always the same by grace through faith in God, but his interaction with human beings adjusts from from dispensation to dispensation. And at the time, sin was not immediately judged in that there was no theocratic government like Israel would have under the law, where God said, you did this, that person's put to death, go ahead and do it. And there was an immediate judgment of sin. Now, Adam and Eve, they sin, right? And there were sudden relational and physical consequences, but God did not mete out what was due to them right then and there. He waited. The same is true of Cain when he murdered his brother. The same is true of Lamech when he murdered one or two guys. The same is true of the wicked generations leading to the flood. He waited hundreds of years before he judged them. And the same is generally true of your sin and mine in our time. Now, there are times in the church age where God immediately judges sin. We see examples of it in the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira. They lie to the Holy Spirit. They do something they absolutely should not have done and be for his reasons that we don't necessarily have all the information for, God immediately judged them, immediately executed them and brought them home to heaven. We're gonna see them in heaven, don't you worry. 
In the epistles to the Corinthians, Paul says the same things. He says, hey, listen, some of you are sinning to a degree that God has decided he needs to mete out judgment, physical judgment right now, and some of you are sick because of your sin. Not all sickness is due to sin, but in that case, those sicknesses were unto death because of their sin unto death. But generally speaking, your sin and my sin have consequences, real world consequences, relational consequences, some that last a lifetime, some that might frankly change the course of human history, which is a scary thought. But generally speaking, God doesn't immediately give us the judgment for our sin, praise the Lord. Now, there would be a painful rift in this family from here on out. That was a consequence of Noah's sin and Ham's sin. But then God uses Noah to proclaim a prophecy concerning the descendants of one of Ham's sons, the nations we know as the Canaanites. We see a spiritual principle proved through Ham and his descendants here. You reap what you sow. Ham brought shame to his father because of his lasciviousness and disrespect, which led to judgment. The Canaanites would do the same. The prophecy continues in verse 26. Noah also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Let Canaan be Shem's slave. Let God extend Japheth. Let Japheth dwell in the tents of Shem. Let Canaan be Shem's slave. From Shem... We'll get more into this next time. But from Shem came the Semitic people, specifically the Jews. This prophecy of <clears throat> enslavement was fulfilled in the time of the conquest under Joshua and the kings of Israel. Historically, there have been some who call themselves Christian who attempted to use this prophecy to justify the enslavement specifically of the African people. And they said, hey, we're just doing what God wants because after all, we've decided that, you know, these people came from Ham and so we not only can enslave them, we should enslave them, we're Christians. This is a loathsome and satanic distortion of what the Bible says. It's not accurate, it's not contextual, it's not true. It does not comport with anything that is given to us in God's word. It is a rejection of truth and a rejection of the teachings of scripture. It is a rejection of Christianity. There is no defense for the historic worldwide phenomenon of human slavery. And so don't let people tell you otherwise. What might we pull from these verses for ourselves today? Well, this passage not only points us toward the conquest of the promised land, but in a greater sense, it continues the melody of salvation. That one day, despite all the sin and despite all our mistakes and despite all of our division, anyone would be able to come into the tent, as it were, and find shelter there. Once God completed the plan of salvation, he sent his son to live and die and rise again, and then it was finished, that work was done. Because of that, human beings would be able to be united together, no matter their background, no matter their ethnicity, no matter their economic status, no matter what mistakes they had made in the past, and brought, be brought together into this house of God, into this tent of the Lord, into Christ, the son of Shem, the final final son that we have been waiting for for thousands of years, the Messiah. And now we're to live as brothers and sisters, not enslaving one another, but choosing to serve one another out of love and affection and family loyalty. Verse 28, now Noah lived 350 years after the flood, so Noah's life lasted 950 years and then he died. Here's an interesting thought that I just hadn't really thought about before. 
because I don't like calculating math numbers. Depending on how you do the math, Noah may have lived to see Abraham turn 58 years old. There is a debate. Some scholars count things a little bit differently. And so there is one group who say, well, Noah died two years before Abraham was born. And then there's another group who say, well, the way we calculated out, he lived till Abraham was 58 years old. We can't be sure. He lived really, really close up to it at very least. It does seem like Shem outlived Abraham, which is just a crazy thing to think about. When we get to it, we'll see how old Shem lives and that he lived longer than Abraham lived. Not in years, he was alive after Abraham died. That's amazing. I wonder if they talked. I wonder if they knew each other. There's lots of you know, completely speculative, extra biblical you know, traditions about this that have no scriptural basis, but I wonder. So Noah's part in the plan of God comes to a close. It's a rough landing, to be sure. But I'm so glad that this remarkable man, when I think of Noah, what's he defined by? Is he defined by this mistake? When you think of Noah, what is the first thing you think of? The dude who got drunk and like all this weird stuff happened? No, he's not defined by his mistake. You first think of God's work through his life. You think of the ark. You think of that great effort that he put forward because of God's leading and that thing, that, that impossible thing that he was able to accomplish because of God's work in his life. And listen, the same can be true of you. You don't have to be defined by your mistakes or by your sins. If you're a Christian, you are defined by God's loving work in and through your life. And even though we're all knuckleheads who stumble at points, God is still excited to use us when we're willing to obey him and turn from our sin. God uses people like Noah, uses people like Moses, a murderer, uses people like Saul of Tarsus, people like Peter, uses people like you and me. He loves to use people who are willing to obey him. As we close, I'd invite us to take the warnings of this passage seriously. The things that were so scandalous about this story are commonplace, no big thing to our society, right? Let's list it. Gossip, drunkenness, lewd activity, sexual deviance, nakedness on display, family division. Are any of those things unheard of in our world today? Absolutely not. They are pillars of our culture. They're pillars of our entertainment. They're normal, they're prevalent. But look at the the terrible fruit that these things bear in the lives of even godly people. We need to be careful. We need to be careful to guard our hearts, guard what we're watching, guard what we're thinking. Guard the way that we relate to one another. Guard the way that we allow ourselves to walk uprightly with the Lord. These dangers lurk at our door. We are just as capable of sin as these heroes of the faith were. And so we must decide to go God's way. We wanna be people who continue in uprightness because we're commanded to live that way. We're to practice righteousness. And when someone in your sphere of influence falls into sin, be that Christian, be that one who helps cover that sin with love. And finally, take joy in the fact that we get to come together in this wonderful tent of faith. This tonight is a local expression of the church, the the family of God. And we should joy in that. This tent of faith, Jesus, by his grace and his power, has made us a family, truly, brothers and sisters together. And so let's protect and cherish not only our own hearts, not only those who we love who might fall into sin, but let's protect and cherish the spiritual unity of our spiritual family and invite others to join in with us.